Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Wine, Women, and Words, the podcast. Wine, Women, and Words is a casual show where book lovers can pour themselves a glass of wine, kick back, and talk books, pour a glass, and join them. It was launched in June 2016, and it's hosted by Diana, who lives in L.A., and Michelle, who lives in Chicago, and they welcome special guests from the literary world, from authors and editors to public speakers and everybody in between. They also select a book, which they read and discuss throughout the month. At the end of the month, their spotlight author joins the show for a special hour-long interview to talk about the author's characters, plot twists, writing process, and more. Oh my gosh, I have to like go listen to this podcast all the time. Anyway, thank you to Wine, Woman, and Words for sponsoring this podcast. Courtney Zoffness is the author of Spilt Milk. Courtney writes fiction and nonfiction and won the 2018 Sunday Times Short Story Award, the most valuable international prize for short fiction amid entries from 38 countries. She joins a winner's list that includes Juno Diaz, Anthony Dorr, and Hee-Hoon Lee. I'm sorry if I mispronounced any of that. Other honors include an Emerging Writers Fellowship from the Center for Fiction, the Arts and Letters Creative Nonfiction Prize, the American Literary Review Fiction Prize, and residency fellowships from McDowell. Her writing has appeared in various outlets, including the Paris Review Daily, the New York Times, the Southern Review, the Rumpus, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She's also had notable essays in Best American Essays 2018 and 19. Her literary debut is Spilt Milk, which was fantastic. Courtney holds graduate degrees from Johns Hopkins University and the University of Arizona and a BA from the University of Pennsylvania. She has taught at nearly a dozen institutions, including Yale University, which, by the way, I went to, and the University of Freiburg, which I did not go to. Currently, she directs the creative writing program at Drew University and is a faculty member at writing workshops in Greece, which I would like to go to. She lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Spilt milk. First of all, love that you call it memoirs instead of just a memoir, which is so clever because you have it broken up into little sections. Tell listeners what this book is about and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, sure. The book is about what we inherit from generations past and what we pass on to our children. And I mean that not just biologically, but culturally, historically, spiritually. And I I take that understanding of passing on, you know, from various angles. And insofar as what inspired me to write it, it came about kind of organically and also kind of by accident. I didn't set out to write this as a book. I found after becoming a mom that I was responding to various experiences or happenings in really particular ways that being a mom just gave me a new gave me new eyes, truly, and that I was processing it through that things that were happening through that lens. And so when I started to look at the various pieces, I noticed this thread in common and the book sort of organically came together. I love that. 
It's great. Take me back to like, when did you start writing? Like, how did you even begin this? And let's end up where the book is. Yeah. So I've had a long gestation as a writer. I mean, I can take you back to early, early days, but go, I would say- Go all the way. Go back. All just, the way. Even, just for a glimpse even. Yeah, sure. That really bad poem that I wrote in junior high that was published in my local newspaper, is that- that's cool. Yes. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. That's exactly the type of stuff I love I to hear. My grandma talking about it with her friends and they wanted me to like interpret it for them, but I didn't even really knew, know what I had written. And I was like, yeah, I meant, I meant all of that. <laughs> I've always loved words and language and stories. I think you probably have too, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say my, my real sort of first stab at becoming a professional writer, whatever that might mean was going to graduate school at the young age of 23, and it took me almost two decades for this book to emerge. So that's okay. <laughs> I have persisted, and it never occurred to me to stop doing this thing that I love to do. That's the most important thing. I mean, the love of the craft and the love of just producing oh, yeah. it, because whether or not it becomes a book is one thing, but it's if what it does for you getting it out is the most important part. I couldn't agree more. So last night I had the book as I was finishing it up and I always read as my kids are falling asleep. So I brought it into my daughter's room. She's seven and she loved the cover. And she's like, well, why don't you read me that book tonight instead of the children's book? And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the beginning and read about the, your son who was afraid of going to school or had anxiety about it, which could not be more relevant to my life today anyway. And so I read it to her and she was like, okay, well, can we go back to my book? But just tell her that I really liked it. Aww. So anyway, I had to share that. <laughs> that is such a funny thing to imagine this being read as like a bedtime story. Yes. Like a man <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have I mean, caught my... I, I, didn't, I didn't read her anything about, you know, like surrogate pregnancy or, you know, oh, I, I didn't... That would have been I, Yeah. <laughs> but I, I've caught my nine-year-old who's now a pretty proficient and prolific reader, you know, with it on the couch. And I'm like, mm, not sure I'm ready for you to do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So tell me like what parts of motherhood as you were going through it inspired you to like sit down and record? Like for instance, that just even at the beginning when you're like, the, your son is afraid in school and you're waiting there and the bathroom scene and like all this stuff, like, would you go and then record, would you take notes? Like, I feel like I lose half the stuff that happens to my children. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it depends on the what. I think that was left a pretty, and I have a terrible memory, so I do often write things down. I mean, I wasn't experiencing that with an eye toward, you know, making it concrete on the page, but it left an indelible impression because it was so upsetting to me as someone who had suffered from anxiety in childhood and maybe or maybe not still in adulthood. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like, those sorts of things. I mean, I came home and started quickly looking up, like, what can I be doing? What do I do? And so I think the narrative of what had happened sort of cemented in that process and made it just an easier transference into an essay. And tell me more about your own experience with anxiety. Sure. So when I was a child, it manifested in a variety of ways, mostly through hyperventilation, which, you know, my parents didn't understand, nor did I. They took me to pulmonologists and, you know, my pediatrician, and I wound up at a pediatric therapist who was not especially helpful. I had bloody noses. I wore a mouth guard because I kept clenching my teeth. I, you know, a variety of symptoms. And 
you know, it wasn't treated in any sort of holistic way. I'm not sure if it could have been. I think even still, those symptoms in isolation can be, you know, attributed to any number of things. And it's really hard for parents and medical professionals often to aggregate the right things to create an appropriate diagnosis. I don't know what would have been helpful, but I do know that it sort of stalked me through adolescence where, you know, I had panic attacks and finally sought some professional help in my young adulthood. And that has proved to be, you know, a reliable source of relief. I just feel like anxiety wasn't even a thing when we were growing up. And I feel like I'm 44, I guess, so similar generation. Like it just wasn't a thing. Like I didn't even realize, I still am like, wait, should I even be embarrassed? Like it just is what it is. Like everybody worries all the time, don't they? (laughs) That's right. So I think figuring out what the threshold is of what constitutes something diagnostic, it's really mysterious. And it is person by person. Some people want to sort of power through and have various tools within themselves to change their mindset, change their behavior and others don't. Well, it's also, you have to be in a certain, you have to be on solid enough ground to be able to avail yourself of the tools that are there. Right. Right. Like if you're drowning, you're not going to be dusting off your cognitive behavioral toolkit. (laughs) I mean, if you're like, if you can't, if you can't even like, you know, grab a branch at that point. So that's right. But I think it's great for, I mean, today, at least there's so much more attention on anxiety in childhood and even what happens when it goes untreated and how so often anxiety becomes depression, you know, when you're a teenager, if it goes untreated for too long and how you can sort of cut that off at the pass now. But before I feel like nobody knew anything about that. So true. So you end up with lots of great books. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I mean, I also think that spectrum can dip too far in the other direction too, right? It's like suddenly I'm a college professor and I feel like I have so many students with so many things. I've never gotten so many letters of accommodation before. And this is fairly new. Yeah. Tell me about, speaking of your students, it just reminded me of the scene with your student who professed his, not even love, but sort of lust, lust, lust after you and how you had to handle that. And you kind of tie in a lot of the current, not me too per se, but just women's sexualization in in multiple contexts. Tell me a little more about that. So that's in a section called Hot for Teacher about a college student who read aloud a story about taking his writing professor atop her desk and having his way with her in front of the class. And I mean, even still, this was years ago, still don't exactly understand what the aim there was, whether, you know, he thought I would immediately comply or... He was removed from my class, though seemed really perplexed that he would get in trouble since he changed the color of my hair and the day the class met, which are ridiculous. But he kept like your same outfit, right? Sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that parlayed into my meditating on, you know, even after that happened, I thought maybe it wasn't as bad as I remembered, you know, riding the train home with his essay in my lap. I thought maybe I was overreacting, which I feel like women often position themselves as as doing. I think we're so used to, sadly, I feel so used to having to encounter and respond to a range of, you know, misogynistic slash inappropriate behavior. So that experience parlayed into my revisiting a variety of sexually inappropriate or misogynistic experiences, and then thinking about being the mother of two boys and how you know, I can, 
if I can, run interference and prevent them from being the kinds of boys turned men who will do these sorts of things to women. And what, I mean, I have two boys also. What do you do? Like, what's your, <laughs> what can I take away from myself from this conversation? How do you do this successfully? Like what, how do you do it? Is it through modeling mostly? I mean, they're still young. Jerry's out, you know, but yeah. yes, I, I just try to have this conversation all the time. So it's like when I see something or when I hear them talking about something that I feel like is reflective of these enormous cultural forces, I address it. You know, I'm thinking about the fact that I live next door to a police precinct station and how my youngest son likes to dress as a cop and how, you know, problematic I find that to be for in part because of the ways he plays that role mm -hmm. and how we've talked about that in terms of gender and manhood and masculinity and, you know, what this, that sort of culture perpetuates and how it ties in to this. So when we're talking about why mommy prefers he dress in other costumes, this is something that comes up. On the other hand, if no little boys are dressing up as policemen, we're not going to have any policemen in like 40 years or something, right? Yeah, his approach now is to dressing like a kind police officer. Well, that's great. That's really bad. the best thing. And yes. through this sort of role play, push him to those places of responding kindly. And I like that. Role play is so key with kids. I oh, feel like yeah. that's my go-to if I'm feeling, if I've had enough sleep to even remember what my strategies are, then <laughs> it's always good. Like, do you think we should behave this way at this event we're about to go to? Or should we do the exact opposite, you know? And then they get so into the game of it that they finally want to think about things yeah, before you, they happen. We've got plenty of strategies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, another interesting part of the book was thinking about how your older son who had more anxiety related to your younger son and how the interplay of that works, even as simple as waking up the other child to what do you do with kids who have totally different sort of needs and within your own family and how do you balance that as a parent? Is that something you still? Yeah, my sons are very different humans. So I think one of the questions I poke at in this book is how much influence parents have on their children and how identifiable is it, you know, in terms of our own parents' influences on us. It, it's convenient to have this sort of cause and effect narrative, this sort of blame game, but I think it's very hard to actually tease out the truth of what influences who and how. So in, in having these two children, two years apart, two and a half years in the same house with the same parent, you know, and seeing just how different they are and they, they do love each other, even if, you know, they're fighting often, it has me really thinking about what effect, if any, I can have as a mom. Yes. I've decided I have very little effect. <laughs> probably true. Like, I think that the parents can do mostly, they can hurt their kids more than improve them. Do you know, like, I feel like as long as you love your kids and you do a pretty good job, your kids are all going to turn out the way they were born to be. It's only if you, as a parent, are negligent or, or awful or to them or something where they, they're going to develop off in a different way. This is my theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny when you said you can do more hurt. I thought you said heard. 
And that seems also true to me that like they are already these forms. That's true. You can just sort of like usher them maybe closer to this side instead of this side. I do feel like I'm like little Bo Peep over here. Yes. I think you don't realize that maybe until you've had more than one child, right? You feel like you're in charge of every piece of their development when it's your first kid. And like everything you do is so laden with meaning and future ramifications that like- I mean, even, Yes. And even though I don't actually think that anymore, I still find myself going to those places, right? It's like, yeah, no, did I make the right choice? Was that, you know, even though if you try to take sort of the bird's eye view, it's like, does this even really matter so much? And it's very hard to not play the self-doubt card. Yes, I totally agree. Nor did I mean to suggest I was confident in all my parenting decisions. No. Because I'm so, I'm not, but I just feel like they're so clearly who they are. Mm -hmm. And now I'm more like sitting back like, oh, okay, let's see this side of your personality come into the world. Exactly. (laughs) It changes so quickly too. Yes. Okay. So this book, yes, you've been writing it for 20 years, but I haven't been writing this book for it. Okay. 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 Writing. Tell me a little more about this particular book and when you even found time to do it, like what your process and where you like to write and how it became a book. So, you know, as a mother of small humans, I am not precious about, you know, being at the right desk with the right pen, with just the right sunlight. You know, I don't have that luxury So, you know, have a full-time job as a professor and I would write on the train. I would write in my office office if nobody visited me for office hours or in the evenings. You know, I have writer friends who are regimented about getting up early, but my oldest son, Oliver, wakes at 5.30. So like, what is early? Am I getting up in the middle of the night? That's just not happening. And I also live in a modest Brooklyn apartment. So there's not even like a place to go to do this work. So it came about in fits and starts. I was often working on multiple pieces at once because something would happen and I you know, would have to sort of commit it to the page in some form and then return to it. But hopefully that process helped create a more cohesive sense in the book because a lot of them were being written simultaneously. Interesting. Yeah. The idea of like a writer's retreat where you can like sit in a cabin and- you Well, know. you know what? I should say I did get to do that. I went to the McDowell oh, yeah. Colony- <laughs> Um, like two weeks that were among the highlights of my life, truly, where I did no dishes, cooked no food, wiped no tushes, like multiple ways in which, like, I I mean, it didn't even have good cell service. I was just like, goodbye world. And that was the ultimate gift from the literary gods, truly. So I did some really deep thinking, deep reading, deep work there. And when was that? Two weeks. It was in 20... 18. Oh gosh, feels like a year, universe ago. Wow. That was 2018. So I was midway into writing it. There were some parts that I couldn't just write in fits and starts, like the police officer piece called Boy in Blue, where I like read the whole history of policing and I had stacks of books about racial justice. And I just, I couldn't do this sort of deep reading and thinking and meditating, you know, spastically. Wow. And how do you feel now with it coming out? Relieved and proud. (laughs) I think, you know, one of the benefits of being like later to bloom is that I spent a lot of time honing my chops and also deciding what I most cared about. And so this is not just like, hello world, you know, here's something. It's it's really a product I, I care a lot about. Well, it's really good. 
it's really, really good and beautifully written and the pacing and the content and all of it. It's so nice when the humdrum of life becomes like literary fodder. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Instead of just stress. (laughs) So it's almost like, you know, seeing your life elevated to art is, is something that sort of validates what we're all doing on a daily basis. So, and that's of course only one piece of the book, but yeah. anyway, so it's lovely. What next from here? What are you doing next? Are you still writing on another collection of stuff or what? What are you doing? You know, I, I think of myself as a fiction writer uh, with how I started and where I got some attention earlier on. And, you know, it's sort of my first love. So this, since this book sort of came out by accident, like I was writing these pieces that coalesced, I'm back to fiction, which is such a relief. I'm so sick of myself. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really nice to imagine my way into other people's lives and heads. Can you say anything about that plot? I'm not sure what, what shape the project is taking yet. So I'm just playing and really enjoying being able to play. Excellent. Well, I'm sure you have tons of advice given that you're a professor, but if you could distill some advice for aspiring authors down, uh-huh. what would what are some some tidbits that you could share? Well, my biggest one is tenacity and persistence because truly this was a long period for me during which, you know, I wasn't always getting over the finish line with things I was writing or getting into the publications that I most aspired to appear in. And, you know, I do feel like there is a lot to be said for, for stick with itness and grit. And I, I think maybe some writers, like I think about my first grad school program when I was 23 and how only two of us stuck with it, not because the others weren't talented enough. Right. But you have to make a living. You have to, whatever There are so many reasons, or maybe you like other things equally as much, but, you know, I think there is something to be said for, for holding fast. Excellent. Great. Well, Courtney, thank you. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks for your beautiful book, especially right now. I read it like the perfect time and it's, I have to say too, your, your post. I also have like all the milks represented in my house. I have like four people drinking four milks. That is just crazy. So I love the idea of like all the milks, (laughs) all the milks. (laughs) I was just like, how could I not? I'm like reading this book surrounded by milk cartons. Like I have to post about this. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for all you do for literature and for writers. Oh, no problem. A really important service. I appreciate it. I love it. I have so much fun doing it. So really benefits me. Anyway, well, I hope I get to meet you in person at some point. Yes, likewise. And thank you so much for doing this. Here's it, Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks again to Wine, Women, and Words, the podcast, for sponsoring this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 